this weekend, um, the, the girl I love more than anyone uh, who's sitting up front, today is her birthday, but she doesn't like attention, you know? Um, but uh, we, so we want to make the weekend special, and so like, what do you want to do, and all this stuff. So we're going we're gonna to go scalloping yesterday, it just started, and so we go out and all this stuff, and, and as um, the day is approaching, on Friday, we're looking at the weather, because we have a, a very small boat that is it's meant for shallow water, and so if a storm comes, we're in trouble. Um, so we don't want to be out in a storm. So we're looking at the weather, like, is this going to happen or not? And my son has got into this kick lately where he demands answers that we don't have. And um, so it started off as the weather, like, well, this is the forecast, but is it going to storm? Are we going to be able to go? Like, I don't know. But what do you think? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> but what do you think? And he demands an answer. Or like our family favorite restaurant, um, the kids get quesadillas from there. And you can order ahead um, through, through the internet, um, such a thing. <laughs> but um, Courtney is trying to order at one point in the recent past, and, and it said, like, quesadilla is not available. And it's like, how is that? Like, it's cheese and bread. Like, you, how, how is quesadilla not available? And so she's telling the family, and he's like, why is that? I'm like, oh, we don't know. Like, it doesn't tell you why. And it's like, but maybe that's just on the app. Maybe if we go to the restaurant, then it'll be okay. It's like, but can we get quesadilla? Like, I don't know. Like, but what do you think? Like, but it's just this perpetual, like, we're supposed to know the answer to something that we don't know the answer to. And there's a danger in that, that we can make some assumptions. Well, what if we're wrong? Like, what if we say the wrong answer and now, sorry, daddy lied to you? Like, that kind of thing. Um, so here's the thing. I need a kid who is very confident that they are good at accomplishing things as they predict. Like, you just know, like, I'm going to be able, I'm up for the challenge. So I need some I need some volunteers. Let me see your hands. I need some excitement, kids, because like there's a prize on the line. Um, anybody going to the beach soon? Fourth of July tomorrow? All right, Ace, I see your hand, buddy. Come on up. That was like the calmest I've ever seen you to express excitement. But All right, so here's the thing. We're going to start off simple. Don't get too excited yet for that. Can you come right over here so everybody can see you? Okay, so here's, here's the thing. Middle finger. This finger, don't hold it up. We're going to put it down. Can you put it? So we're going to fold it under, and we're going to put those fingers out. All right. So it's a challenge. You ready? So this is pinky, ring finger, and pointer finger, and thumb. Got that? You know which one's your thumb? Pick your thumb up. Keep, keep your hand down. Ooh, good job. All right. Uh, now pinky finger. Put thumb down. Thumb down. Ooh, wow, good job. All right. Pinky finger down, pointer finger. This one? All right. You're good so far. Now this one. Wait, what happened? Come on, buddy. Come on. Get it. Get it. Get it. Oh, good job. All right. We'll, we'll call it a win. Good job. All right. Take that away. So here's the thing. Next challenge. I need you to know the answer. You have 10 seconds. We're going to count it down, Okay. Don't speed them up too fast, but give them 10 solid seconds. 10 seconds to tell me exactly how many jelly beans are in that glass container. Ready? Count it down. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All right, what's your answer? Ah, 210. That's not right. Do you think I can do it? You think in 10 seconds I can find out exactly how many are in there? I bet you I can. Uh, five. 
I got it. Fair. What? How's it not fair? How's it not fair? Here, you can have these. Oh, they're stuck, brother. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what, we'll trade. You can have those, and you can have this. Good job, Ace. <laughs> well done, buddy. Your dad has asked me, without saying it, to not eat all of those immediately <laughs> or in the next week. <laughs> Very cool. But sometimes uh, it's really hard to know the answer to things, and we can make an assumption based on an appearance, and we might be terribly wrong. 210, not quite how many jelly beans. I'll cheat a little and dump them out and say, hey, there's five stuck at the top. But uh, we, we really can get in trouble if, if we make assumptions or, or prematurely draw conclusions, and often that can leave us either missing out or entirely misled. And so that's what we need to, to acknowledge before we come into today's text. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So we're continuing our summer series. If you'll turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1 in the Old Testament. Over the last month, we went through the book of Ruth. I greatly enjoyed that and hope you did too. Um, the book we are entering now, 1 Samuel, is just after the book of Ruth. So if you recall where you were at in your Bible last week, finishing up the book of Ruth, this week, turn the page, 1 Samuel, at the start of this book, is where we will be today. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, um, we're going to start with verse 1. It says, there was a man from, here's some names, there was a man from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, son of Elohu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. So we have, we have the introduction here, the start of this story. This is a narrative book, so it's kind of telling us a story that's based in history so that we hear the story and can learn from that. But as it starts off, we find where we are and we find the introduction of some names, some characters that are gonna be in this story. And so there's um, this reference to two wives that should have raised your eyebrow. Like, that's, wait, what? This man has two wives. And so um, two wives, let's just be all clear on this. Two wives is a no-no, Okay. <laughs> All the married men say, correct, correct, yes. Um, but even if you're not married, two wives is a no-no. You don't have two wives, and they knew this. And so we have to ask the question, why would this man who, like, th this is an Israelite, he, he knows the promises of God, he knows the earlier scriptures, he knows that God from the beginning designed marriage to be one man and one woman. The husband leaves his mother and father, holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That is the definition of marriage. That is how this is supposed to be. Not as many wives as you want or anything like that. It's, it's one wife. It's to be this exclusive romantic relationship that's based on a covenant that ends in death. And so if that's the case, why would this guy have two wives? And it seems likely, based on what it just told us, this is due to one being infertile. So likely Hannah was the first wife, was not having any children. And in this day and age, this is a much more agrarian society. So labor comes from childbirth. And, and I'm not talking about the labor that a mother goes through to give birth to a child, but physical labor. And so wealth comes from labor, and labor comes from having hands that can do the labor. So if you had a large family, then you had more workers. You could have more people doing things, have bigger crops, all this other stuff without having to hire out other labor. And so in these times, 
To have more children was to be more and more blessed because you have more people who can contribute to the family. You have all this stuff. But even more importantly, as it points out here, you need a son to be an heir. Who's going to receive the property? Who's going to receive the wealth when the family just passes on the next generation? Like what will be the inheritance? Who receives the inheritance? And so if he has a wife who is not creating an heir, someone to receive the inheritance, then the idea is we'll have another wife. And then I'll have children through that to keep the family name alive and all of this stuff. And so he has two wives. That is a no-no, should not have happened, but that is where we find ourselves in this story. That does not mean, listen, this is very important, kids and adults. Just because you read something in the Bible does not mean you should pull that out of context and say, well, it must be okay. And there are people who will mislead you into all kinds of dangerous, very ungodly things because they can point to an example. It's like, David, a man after God's own heart, how many wives did he have? No, you cannot do that. And so we have to see all of these stories in light of what God has revealed as a whole. And so two wives is a no-no, but you hear about this one wife who is not having children. And so this should trigger us as we're reading through the story of scripture. If we have read this kind of sequentially, as we're coming through and you put this all into the timeline in your mind, this should trigger some things. You should be remembering other stories that have come before this of other women who are brought to the forefront in scripture who don't have children, who are struggling to have children. So our mind should immediately start to think of all this. It should bring up these previous stories and we should see based on that that something significant is about to come. When a childless woman is presented, something significant is about to happen. And so now, with all of that kind of like in our minds of like all these other stories of when God has provided, like you're thinking of Abraham, whose wife Sarah doesn't have children. They're really, really, really old. And then suddenly from a dead womb comes life and all these other stories that you're bringing this together. You're like, okay, this could be going somewhere. Now we come to this. There's a husband, two wives. One has children, one does not have children, but they live here in Shiloh. They've come here to Shiloh where there's this, Basically, the tabernacle has been set up and it likely has become a quasi-permanent structure at this point here. This is a house of worship. This is where the tent of meeting would have been moved to. And so the Ark of the Covenant, all this stuff should be located here. People across Israel, God's people, would come to this location at least annually and they would worship. They would bring offerings and sacrifices. The tent of meeting is now located in Shiloh. And the fact that this family comes up year after year, they come regularly, tells us this is a family devoted to Yahweh. So again, we should think, why do you have two wives, brother? (laughs) You know what Yahweh, the Lord God, the one true God has said about marriage. And so you bring all that tension to this. And now verse four. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, that's the dad, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? And so, 
They've come to Shiloh to make these sacrifices and they're eating. This is actually common practice. The way that you would um, do this is you'd come to the tents of meeting, you come to the tabernacle, you come ultimately to the temple and you would bring your sacrifices. The priest would take over and like, okay, this is okay. It's, it's presentable, all this stuff. They would decide whether it's an acceptable sacrifice. They'd bring it in, they'd slaughter it and then portions of it would be sent outside as the grotesque, the, the unacceptable portions would be sent outside of the tent and then the parts that were to be offered would be placed up for a burnt offering, and then the remaining portions would then be actually cooked and consumed by the participants. They would actually eat part of what was sacrificed. There would be essentially a party. Like you would enjoy feasting on this stuff. And so they have come, they've offered their sacrifice, and now they're eating the portions of what was sacrificed, and dad's in charge, and he's like, here's meat for you and the kids, and here's meat for you, sweetie, I so love you, even though you've not brought any kids into the world, just remember that I love you. And so you have them taking all of that, and yet we see the sorrow that's, that's here. There's, there's anguish in her heart. Hannah is hurt deeply because this other wife is like a rival. She's described as a rival, and she would taunt her. She would provoke her. She would point out to her, like, hey, look at you. Never contributing around here. You can't have kids, huh? That must be terrible, huh? And, like, you imagine, like, this is, this is bullying. Like, there's someone who has some kind of strength or, or leverage over another person, and they're making fun. They're poking at They're taking these jabs. And so this ridicule follows, which is weird, Right? This is a family that seems to be devoted to Yahweh. They're coming for the, the sacrifice annually. They're coming to Shiloh to worship God. And so it seems that this family cares about God and his truth. They want to worship him rightly as he has told them to. And you go back to the beginning when Adam and Eve were created and their command, the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply. So a God who wants for humans to reproduce and fill the earth like that was their command in the beginning. Now here's this woman who cannot fulfill that command and she cannot have children. And you have to wonder, what does that mean? That God would have made a woman, it says explicitly, he made her unable to conceive. Why would God make a woman unable to conceive, unable to bear fruit of children? Why would God do this to someone? The ridicule, the hurts, would come to that. Many would actually question her infertility and see it as a divine judgment. That you must have done something wrong to God. You have sinned in some way. Somehow you have brought this on yourself that you cannot have children because of something that you have done. But again, we see Hannah returning with the family to worship year after year. And so you have to wonder, that doesn't make sense. They're, they're trying to serve God. They're trying to honor God and his commands. And yet, people would be poking at her like her rival, making fun of her. So verse nine. On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. Hannah so badly wants an heir. She so badly wants a son, and so she's coming to the tent of meaning. She's at the door, and here at the door, you can imagine her lying down on the ground. She's praying, but she's just mouthing the words, and she's crying in her distress. She's not eating. We've already seen that just in, in verse eight, 
Elkanah comes to Hannah. He's like, wife, like you know how much I love you. Why are you so upset? Why won't you eat? Why are you fasting? <laughs> he, said, he said, aren't I better than 10 sons? Which is actually him referencing back to what happened with Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And so this is one of the patriarchs. And Jacob married Rachel. And Rachel could not have children. And she had, Jacob had 10 sons before Rachel had the final two. As so you imagine this long stretch of there not being an offspring, and he's saying, am I not better than 10 sons the way that I love you? And so he's rooting her back into the story of God and his providence. And she's crying, and she's praying, and she's making this commitment to the Lord. Hannah went to the Lord with her hurt and made her request. Where do you go in your hurt? To who do you look for comfort? To whom do you look for provision, for someone to meet your needs or even your wants? Where do you go on those days when you're like, I don't know quite what's wrong, but I just feel off. And so you spend the whole day just thinking like this, this, this. Maybe I'll eat a little more of this or I'll drink a little more of that than I know I should or I'll click on this button when I know I shouldn't or I'll do whatever it is. Where do you turn in your hurt? In your confusion, in your pain, who do you look to? Hannah saw God as the only one able to heal this pain and to provide for her. I love the language she uses in this prayer as she calls herself servant over and over. She saw herself and repeatedly referred to herself as the Lord's servant to humble herself before God and recognize that he is over her and she is just a servant. And so to come as a servant making a request Becoming as a servant, making the request of a master who you know can provide. The only one who can heal. She's recognizing God's position over her. And I love that she offered something to God along with making her request. Do you see that? That she comes and she's asking God, would you give me a son? And if you will give me a son, I will commit him to you. That his hair will never be cut. He will serve you all the days of his life. So we go back into the law of Leviticus. Um, Actually, you find this in Numbers chapter six. And and this is what's called a Nazarite vow. Uh, A Nazarite vow is a way of making this special vow or oath to God that you're gonna be consecrated or set apart for something to be holy to the Lord. And so for the duration of a Nazarite vow, you're not to cut your hair. You're not to drink any alcoholic beverage. You're not to be around a dead body. There's, there's all these restrictions and there's special offerings and so forth that you're to give as you conclude a Nazarite vow. And she's saying that will be his life. His whole life will be devoted to you. He will be consecrated to you. If you will give me this gift, if you will provide a son for me, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours to use for all of his days. And so I love that she's actually coming, making this request of God, but along with her request, she's offering something to God. So track with me. Track with me on this. This is very important. We know that God gives to us out of grace, meaning we have nothing to offer God. We do not merit or earn our salvation. We do not earn or merit a right standing with God. Anything good that God could give us is not based on what we deserve. We don't earn anything from God. We cannot put God into our debt. And yet, there is this beautiful biblical principle of a believer, a follower of God, coming to God in his grace and offering something back to him. 
And that is the beauty of our salvation. We have nothing to offer God that would put him in our debt, but we can absolutely respond to his grace with an offering. And that is the life of a believer. That is the life of a Christian. This is the way of Jesus, that we come to him with nothing and put our faith in him alone for salvation. I can contribute nothing to this, God, but you love me in grace. When I don't deserve it, you love me and you've made a way. You have provided, but because you have provided, now I want to give back my life. And so Paul says in Romans 12, therefore, meaning in response to all of chapters one through 11, which is this beautiful articulation of the entirety of the gospel, It says, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. That in light of all of what the gospel is, that we do not deserve God's goodness and his grace, he gives it freely because that's who he is. He's merciful. He loves us when we don't deserve it. But now in response to that, we give our very life. And he calls us into obedience and holiness. And we want, we willingly give back to him because he gave to us when we did not deserve anything good. This is the beauty of our God. And so Hannah is offering that now. She can do nothing to change her situation, but she's calling on the one who can change it all. And she's saying, if you will, then I give back. Let him be wholly consecrated to you. Verse 12. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. Jelly beans in a jar. How many are there? I could take a guess, but I don't actually know. Sometimes we can make an assumption. Sometimes we can jump to the wrong conclusion. Here's this woman, brokenhearted, And she's at the gate. And here's this old man, Eli. His two sons are now the high priest. He's basically at retirement age. He's not physically capable anymore of performing the sacrifices, all these things. And so he's just kind of like the guard here. He's at the gate, literally. He's at the door and just keeping watch. And here's this woman that he sees lying down and she's mouthing these things. She's praying, crying. She's been fasting. She's starving. And he thinks... Ah, another drunk. And lays into her. How long, you drunk old lady? How long? Get rid of your drunkenness. But is she drunk? No. She's in great hurt. She's in great sorrow. And she's pouring her heart out to God. She's actually engaged in a form of worship to see that he's worthy and he's over her and she's humbling herself before him and making her requests of him. Uh, I used to be on staff at a pretty big church and there's a, this massive greeter usher team and um, there's one guy that will remain nameless. But it was simultaneously hilarious and incredibly offensive. But he, he had this thing where he would, he would find seats for people and as he's walking down the aisles and he'd find seats and then he'd come back as he'd walk by people he knew if their hands were raised in worship, like usually eyes closed, hands up, and he would high five every one of them. I was like, what is going on? Like, that's so terrible. Like, <laughs> you imagine this priest here. As this lady is pouring her heart out to God, crying and begging God for a son. And here's the priest, and he just looks over, drunk. Get out of here. Knock it off. Go sober up and come back. 
He totally missed it. He made the wrong assumption. This is not what we should do. You know, this is side sidebar, but in worship, we should be orderly. It should not create confusion, but we should absolutely be authentic. Please, do not hold back for fear of what others think of you and praising our God. I imagine David, as he's coming back at one point into the city, and his young wife, Micah, is there, and, and there's the famous story of he, he basically gets down to his skivvies. He's, he's dancing around in his underwear. And everybody's joined in, dancing, singing, praising God. And he gets back home, and Micah's like, look at you, made a fool of yourself today, exposed yourself to all the young ladies, huh? She's giving him a hard time, and he's like, you know what? It'll get worse than this. I'll gladly dishonor myself before God. If he would be honored, I would gladly be dishonored. And note, she's the only one who didn't have kids of all his wives. We cannot care so much about what other people think. Sing loud. Sing loudly. Raise your hands in worship and admiration. The scripture actually tells us to lift up our hands. And that doesn't mean that you legalistically have to but it actually is very helpful at times. The same way that soldiers will salute the president as he walks by. It's not about you drawing attention to yourself. It's you posturing yourself before God. That I revere you. I exalt you. And sometimes that's not actually an emotional response from you. Often I think what's better is it's you physically posturing yourself that right now I don't feel it. But I will go ahead and do what I need to to physically come to a place where I can help my mind and heart get in line with what is actually true here is that God is over me and he's worthy of everything. So with open hands, I surrender and I give you all. So here, my offering. All right, back to this. Verse 15. This is the response as this man calls her a drunk. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. So Hannah explains. She doesn't just run away from the accusation. She responds. She gives an explanation for her behavior. She explains, and then he blesses her. And she is genuinely transformed after praying and hearing this blessing to the point that she's no longer despondent. She's no longer just heartbroken, sad, rejected looking, but she actually gets up and goes and eats. She finishes her fast. She has poured her heart out to God, has heard this blessing from a priest, and now she goes. She has said what she can, she has done what she can, and now she moves forward. There's so much we can see from this. But bottom line, what I want us to see in this is that prayer is how we seek God's provision. Prayer is how we seek God's provision. He alone can provide for all of our needs. And so again, we have to ask, where do we turn when we need something? Where do we turn when we want something? Do we turn to the Lord and see that he alone can provide? And when we turn to him, how do we turn to him? Do we actually ask him? How often do we ask God to provide for our needs? I am deeply convicted by that. That too often I give up, I ask something, and I'll ask, and I'll ask, and next thing I know, I'm like, okay, I guess that's my answer, and I just stop. But Jesus taught us to pray persistently, 
to not give up, to keep coming and making our requests known of God. And I think that often what can happen is we shift from not just like carrying over and asking again and again in persistence and just letting that come back and back and back and back until slowly our hearts harden and we just become callous. And we're like, well, God's sovereign. His providence, we'll trust in his providence. Like we, we see it all over the scriptures that God is in control of everything. And so he'll do what he will do. And that's actually not the way that scripture paints the picture. He is absolutely in control of everything. Absolutely everything. And yet that does not diminish your responsibility. And that does not lock him in to things that he said that would actually change. Like this is the way that James says it in his letter. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And that's true. You do not have because you do not ask. If you want the Lord to provide, ask him to like Hannah. We cannot just think, oh, God's sovereign, and so just let it play out. Here's a puppet show. That's not at all what scripture tells us. He is sovereign, and yet he's inviting us into this, that from eternity past, his decrees have been that your prayers would actually change things. Things don't change when you do not pray and ask them to change. So let's be like Hannah and actually pour our hearts out to God. Let's pray and expect God to move and do things because you do not have because you do not ask. We must ask. Let's pray. Let's ask God. This is how we seek God's provision is in prayer. So let's be a praying people. The reason we can pray, this is the gospel, that we were alienated. We were separated from God that our sin, our rebellion, the fact that every single day, but going all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, we have chosen to be our own gods. I'll decide what is right and wrong. I'll eat from that tree. I'll fail the test. And then every day we put ourselves on the throne above God or some other created thing in place of the creator. We're constantly doing this. This is at the heart of sin that we have missed the mark of God. We are living in rebellion and yet God comes to us when we were his enemy. He says, I love you. And he sent Jesus, his own son, and he died for us after living a sinless life. So he was the human, truly human, who actually was a true human. The way that God created us to be. And yet truly human, he was also truly divine. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died in his perfection on a cross in our place, on that cross, he exchanged our sin for his righteousness so that he would be the sacrifice. We don't have to go to Shiloh. We don't have to go to Jerusalem and find the temple or the tent of meeting or any of these things to offer a sacrifice and kill a lamb or anything like that. This is the lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. This is the once final for all sacrifice, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the very son of God who died on a cross because he loves us if you would put your faith in me, turn from your sin, confess him as Lord, believe he died and he rose again and he's calling us into newness of life. He said he's creating everything new again. This is our God to be back with him. And so prayer really comes down to simply communing with God. It's us talking with him, enjoying the fellowship that we have with him, that Jesus died to remove that separation, that the temple veil was torn in two. So the holy of holies where God's presence would dwell above the mercy seat. It's a mercy seat, meaning there's mercy expressed there. We never come there deserving it. And yet the presence of God, that temple veil that kept us separate was torn in two. So there is no separation now between God and man because Jesus has made the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we now have direct fellowship with God. And 
And he said it was better for him to go than to stay. And that's because he sent his spirit. So now the spirit of God is actually in us and helps us to pray. And so we should press into that more and more and more that God himself is with us and hears us. And so we should ask him to change things. We should pray with him knowing he hears our prayers. Straight to him, he hears our prayers and he delights to answer them. And so as we look at Hannah, I want to conclude with pointing out a couple things about Hannah. Things that we learned from Hannah. She understood the gospel, even if she did not know the name of Jesus. But she trusted in a God who is gracious and merciful, who could provide for her. And the way that I love Tim Keller says this about the gospel and how we can pray like Hannah, he says, um, we know God will answer us when we call because one terrible day he did not answer Jesus when he called. Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit so that our prayers could have the reception that he merits. Hannah threw herself in the mercy and grace of our Lord, asking him to provide like no one else could. And so as we look at this book, um, Scott Hubbard is a theologian. He says this. He says, The books of First and Second Samuel tell the story of how God turned Israel into a kingdom, how he sought a man after his own heart to sit on the throne and to begin a royal line that would one day run to Jesus. But where does the story of a king and a kingdom begin? With one infertile woman pleading for a son. Moms, do you know the power of praying for your children? Fathers, do you know the power of praying for your children? We see the beauty of this over and over in scripture. There's story after story of these barren women praying for their sons, praying for children. And we see God do amazing things. To them. But then we even see this throughout Christian history. The famous Augustine of Hippo, brilliant theologian, Bishop Augustine did not become a believer until much later in his life. In fact, he was far from even the appearance of a believer for much of his life. And yet history has shown us, it's recorded how his mother Monica prayed desperately for him. Years and years of desperate prayer and then Augustine becomes all that we know of Augustine. Or Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon for you Baptist types. You love Charles Spurgeon, we, the prince of preachers. Charles Spurgeon also was far from what you would call a believer. And yet he would record stories of how his mother, while his father was away doing ministry, would so often sit them down and just plead with them to turn to the Lord. Has little children, teaching them the scriptures, praying aloud for them, just begging God to do something. And Spurgeon ultimately found this faith that she prayed so desperately. Hudson Taylor, known famously for launching what are now millions upon millions of Chinese believers even through regimes that would try to suppress the church and its growth. But Hudson Taylor went there and as after many, many years of a similar story of Amelia, his mother, praying for him. Pray for your children and trust that God can truly change things. So we see Hannah and she shows us two things, posture and position. So as you pray, remember posture and position. We learn from her posture that we must be honest. She did not sugarcoat things. She did not shy away from saying hard things. She said what she felt. She wept. She fasted. She expressed who she was, seeing she was actually human with real human emotion, and she did not shy away from that and took it to the God who created her. So be honest in your posture. 
There was a genuineness to her display of grief and crying out to God, even when it was assessed to be wrongful by the priest. She was genuine about it. She was honest about what she desired for the board. She committed him to the Lord. This actually shows us beautiful maturity and her spiritual walk. That what she was requesting was aligned with what the Lord wanted. So we submit our requests to the will of the Lord. But we ask. And we're honest in our asking. And then the position is that she's hopeful. She asked believing. She persisted in prayer because she believed in a sovereign God who could actually provide. If you don't believe God can provide, there is no reason to continue praying. We only pray to God because he truly can provide. And sometimes we can take that to an unhealthy place and say like, well, like so much, we're obsessed with freedom and all this stuff that like we can't, we can't like press on anyone's freedom. Like they've got to be able to make their own decision, all these things. Well, you better stop praying. Because if God is truly sovereign and that's why we pray, he absolutely can be God and do what he wants. And so we should embrace that. We should be hopeful in that, that God can truly change things. The Lord is the one who is said to have kept her from conceiving. The Lord is also shown to be the one who can change that. She knew that. She was hopeful in that. If he does not have the power to change things for fear of interfering, then why pray to him at all? So can you be hopeful praying for hard things? Can you be hopeful in hard things, believing that God is actually at work in everything? So let's be people who are hopeful and honest as we pray because God actually answers us in prayer. He loves to. He wants to hear from us. So skeptic, you don't know if you believe any of this? Prayer. I've heard the studies. They say that people who pray are a lot healthier. So it seems like there's something to it, but maybe it's just a placebo. I don't know. You're just not sure. Seeker, you really want to know what's true? I'd I'd love to know. Or stumbling saint, does God hear my prayers? I've heard those passages about like the way I treat my wife can affect the way that God hears my prayers, like all these weird things. Maybe you're just a doubting saint. I've prayed and I've asked over and over and over and he's not answering. Why is he not answering? Will you believe this good news? There's a God who's listening and he is altogether good. He's altogether powerful and able. So will you keep asking? And follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? If there's a God who is listening and he loves you, so we can pray honestly and we can pray with hope. Will you pray now with me? Father, thank you for loving us the way that you do. You're glorious. You're so gracious and you're so merciful. You are truly abounding in steadfast covenantal love. So we thank you that you are faithful when we are not. Uh, God, we're inspired by Hannah's story. But we, we also recognize that um, everything about her story that's inspiring is that it's just pointing to you. That even in her hurt and her deep sorrow, that in some strange way, it's, you, you actually caused that. That was not the end of it. And you were truly working it all for her good and your glory. So God, help us to have a heart like that, to be honest in praying to you, but to be hopeful, to not lose faith, to not lose hope. So God, would you grow our belief? Help us in our unbelief. We love you, we trust you, and we praise you, asking all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.